Lord, these songs that we've sung contain bold proclamations, God, that you are king of this earth. And we will hold out your truth, God, as your ambassadors in the dark corners of this earth. We will shine like stars in the night. That's our calling. To be a light, reflecting the light of Jesus Christ, his authority, his rule, his lordship to the darkness around. Lord, it's easy for us to underestimate that call. It's easy for us to underestimate how deep and dark and thick, Lord, the world around us really is in sin and even the condition of our own heart. Lord, this call may require us to go to prison one day. As we've read already this morning, in the acts of your first apostles and disciples, in many cases, their lives were required of them, certainly their name, their reputations, their convenience. They went to prison, many of them, Lord Jesus, because they proclaimed that you are Lord. Father, I pray that you would give us the same conviction, Lord, regardless of the circumstances, that we would boldly shine. I pray that persecution could, would not be able to quench this church, your church, in this generation, Lord. Lord, you are in charge of the circumstances Lord, you are in charge of the future. You hold this world in your hand. Our desire this morning, Lord, is to be counted among those that align ourselves with the providential direction of your favor in history. Lord, we want to be seeing the future with the eyes like David had when he wrote Psalm 2. To be, Lord, a fly on the wall with divine conversations about how you will in the end. Be proven holy, just, omnipotent, powerful, and true, and inscrutable in your wisdom. We want to listen in as we study your word to the conversations between the Son and the Father that plan and purpose and will. Everything that you have set, Lord, in your heart to accomplish. Lord, we want to be encouraged by the decrees, by the declarations, by the revelation of the knowledge of you that is contained within the pages of your holy word. And we want to be emboldened by that resource, God. And we know that that source of strength is more powerful than any weapon the enemy could wield against your holy, Lord, your holy cause. But to be your church, we must be equipped and to be equipped, we must lay down the flesh that easily besets and distracts and stands in the way, Lord Jesus, of making room in our souls to retain more of the understanding of who you are. So, Lord, I pray for conviction to come on me and everyone listening, that we would leave distractions and sin aside, that we would embrace your word for what it is. God, I pray if it were possible this morning, you would let us feel the same weight of conviction that the authors of Scripture felt when they wrote the words that we dare to read this morning, God, so that they can make a lasting, deep impression on our heart. Let the tables of our heart be indelibly etched with your truth, we pray, God. Lord, we repent because during the week there are things that captivate and hold our attention, Lord Jesus, for longer periods of time than your word does. But I pray that as the Spirit's evidence is working through us, that sanctification would take shape in our lives to move more of our security from our surroundings to your word. From the lies, Lord Jesus, that drift in and out of our culture and our experience 
to the infallible truth of Scripture. Lord, if this is done and accomplished, even in small measure, Lord, through this service this morning, it is testimony to the Holy Spirit. So we give you honor and glory and pray, Lord Jesus, that you would quicken our faith through the sharing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. If you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. This morning is second installment in the Psalm a Month series, the second Sunday of the month. So you probably have it figured out by now. That means you can start reading Psalm 3 for next month following today. And it's been interesting to read some of these Psalms at greater depth. And I hope it is inspiring you as well as we read. And we'll try to explore some of these depths in Psalm chapter 2 as we read it this morning. We'll open with reading its verses And then we'll move to some hopefully spirit-led commentary on it to get all my study aids here with me. And then, so if you're there with me in Psalm chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 1 and read all the way to the end. David is the author of this psalm we know from the New Testament. The passage in Acts that we quoted earlier this morning says as much. So David writes, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. This is a contentious psalm. It really is confrontational. I tried to read it in the light that I imagined it would be delivered maybe in an oratory by David himself, who is declaring some things maybe to the warring nations encamped around Israel. A quick historical context for you. The nation of Israel had an anointed king at the time the psalm was written. His name was David. When you think of the term anointed, it will come up likely a couple times in this message. And perhaps you could think of anointed as that which or those who God commissions to accomplish something according to his will. So if God anoints something, that means he inaugurates it. He institutes it. It is his idea put in place to accomplish his holy purposes. David was an individual that was anointed by God to be king, to be the leader of Israel at this time. He was God's anointed one. But David as he writes about his own experience as the anointed leader of God's people, 
He understands with a far greater perspective than self-centered kings of the earth who do not honor God, serve or fear him, realize the larger picture in view. And this psalm really illustrates that well. David has a correct, a biblical understanding and perspective on his role in God's plan. As far as he was concerned, it was very minor, but it was miraculous how God would use someone like David to accomplish big things and how God can use you and me and how God will even use in judgment the kings of the earth if they do not repent. The message of this psalm, as reflected, I hope, responsibly in the title of this message, is Inevitable Submission. Psalm 2, Inevitable Submission. Every knee will bow, as Scripture later says, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And this psalm explains how. Every knee will either bow of their own will and accord, or the knees that don't will eventually be broken. Every knee will bow, or every knee will be broken. Submission is inevitable. If God is who Scripture declares him to be, resistance is indeed futile. There is no way to escape it. It's inescapable. It's a reality that is ontological, to borrow a word I've been uh, practicing using lately. It's something that's inarguable, set in stone. There is nothing, no objection that could be raised that would shake it or unseat it. It is established forever. And that is the power of God's rule. That is the extent of his realm and authority. His kingdom is established and there will never be a single one to challenge his throne successfully. And history has recorded and will continue to record the folly of those who try. And this psalm declares it. If you challenge the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, your folly will be written down in the annals of heaven, if not the annals of Scripture that we will read some of today, as the laughing stock for generations to come. And any fool who should say he's more powerful, has a better idea than God in his inscrutable wisdom, will be proven to be an idiot. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 say, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Really, David is portraying the attitude of those who would beg to differ with God. And this attitude is one that rages against authority. And you can see it in these words. Another way you might be able to see it a little more clear is in this children's book right here. I know I'm pulling a fast one on you guys. I don't know if you're all familiar with this book. It's a popular children's book. It's called Where the Wild Things Are. I'm going to read, actually, the first half of this book because I couldn't get the illustration out of my mind how the attitude reflected in the first three verses of Psalm chapter 2 is almost the exact attitude reflected in the main character, Max, of this children's book. It reduces the principle of rebellion to very simple terms and might help you understand how insolent, petulant, petty, childish, and ridiculous even kings are should they challenge God's authority. So we begin here in chapter 1. It only is one chapter probably. Where the wild things are. Here we have Max with a hammer and a nail destroying the house. That he lives in. Says the night Max wore his wolf suit. You can see him in his wolf suit here. Dressed up in some Halloween like garb. The night Max wore his wolf suit. And made mischief of one kind and another. Chasing dogs down the steps with 
cooking utensils. His mother called him wild thing. And Max said to his mother, mind you, I'll eat you up. So he was sent to bed without eating anything. That very night in Max's room, a forest grew. You can see Max with a smug look on his face as he exercises his imagination to virtually grow a forest in his own mind. And grew, more trees appear. And grew until his ceiling hung with vines and the walls became the world around. And an ocean tumbled by with a private boat for Max and he sailed off through night and day. And in and out of weeks and almost over a year to the land where the wild things are. And when he came to the place where the wild things are, they roared with terrible claws and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws. Till Max said, be still and tamed them with a magic trick of staring into their yellow eyes without blinking once. They were all frightened and called him the most wild thing of all and made him king of all the wild things. And now cried Max, let the wild rumpus start. And the next uh, like six pages in the spirit of a picture shows a thousand words illustrate the wild rumpus. That's all I'll read of that book. Now I'll get back to the Bible. In that quick illustration, you can see the petulant behavior of a rebellious son. Who is the authority figure in Max's life? The one listed in that story is his mother. What did his mother tell him to do? Stop destroying the house. What was Max's attitude? Defiance. What did he do? Disobeyed. How did he exercise his defiance? And rebel against his mother. He did it through the power of his imagination. You can't make me sad by sending me to the room. I won't embrace the spirit of punishment. Look at me. I'm having just as much fun. Shut up here as king in my imagination. As I had destroying your house moments before. In this world of his own design. By the plot he created in his mind. He was ruler of all his subjects. He tamed them with a magic trick. They all were subject to him. And then he instituted new rules and new authority. In Max's new world, you never had to eat your vegetables. You never had to say please or thank you. The homework never had to be finished. You never had to clean your room. You could destroy anything at any time, whatever you wanted to do. Basically, lawlessness. You can see in very simple terms how the first part, and it's a little more redemptive as you read. It's not a Christian book per se. But it's interesting to compare through scripture Max's attitude and to see how evil and wicked it really is. And now let's go back to our verses in question. Notice what the nations do, what the peoples do, what the rulers, what the kings of the earth do. They rage just like Max. No, mother. No, God. You are not king. I will not obey. They plot in vain. I'm going to pretend there are no rules and I will make my own. There's no authority higher than me. I am king of in my own imagination. I rule this earth and there is no one higher to answer to in my own mind. Notice the forest of trees that are blocking my perception as I rule as if I were God. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and to cast away their cords from us. And there you see the heart of insolent kings wanting to change God's rules. We will make our own laws. 
We will establish right and wrong. We will determine for ourselves in the heart of the promise of Lucifer, good from evil. And no longer will we rule ourselves or our people by thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Anything as primitive as that. But we will make new and better rules. Let the wild rumpus begin. This is the heart of any king who serves in any way. Any man who exercises any authority to the smallest degree, to the greatest degree, if they do not do so with the fear of the Lord. Notice the end of the chapter in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Don't be fooled. His wrath is kindled quickly. As I mentioned, this children's book illustrates in very basic terms the frame of mind that sinful man acts on, whether he's a four-year-old rebelling against his parents or whether he's the United Nations trying to establish a world court by some other law than God's own. It doesn't matter. They fall into the same category of petulant, rebellious insolence. This children's book character reminds us that in spite of of the sinful facade that we create and engineer that looks really intimidating, at its root level, it is childish and petty behavior that would say, I am God. And if you think in our society today, or if you think in our culture, all the forums that exist out there that make bold, emphatic statements, I just thought of a few off the top of my head. They take the shape of propaganda, press releases, policy forums, think tanks, spin You know, doctrinal theses, strategies, committees, focus groups, talk shows, polls, forums, memos, manifesto, talking points, commentators, scientists, um, trying to read my own writing, pundits, headlines, psychology, speeches, summits, news anchors, platforms, agendas, ad campaigns, editorials, theories, PR stunts, celebrity, textbooks, academia, and special interest groups. And that was just all the ones I could think of off the top of my head. Now, if any of these forums, if they are used to display and proclaim a truth claim that is not rooted in the fear of the Lord. All of them are window dressing for a petulant four-year-old in a wolf suit arguing against his mother. When we see it in this light, we know then why God laughs and holds these nations in derision in verse four. If we continue to refuse to serve the Lord with fear, America or any nation or any king ruler or anyone exercising authority, if you continue to refuse to serve the Lord with fear, we are every bit as petulant, rebellious, unruly, ungrateful, irreverent, ridiculous, childish, insolent, petty, pretentious, unreasonable, immature, selfish, delusional, misguided, destructive, and despicable as an undisciplined four-year-old. You can blame the Two cups of coffee for my incessant string of adjectives this morning. What I wanted to try to do was uncouch in our minds some of the veneer of which uh, nations and authority structures advertise themselves to see at the root level how simply wicked they truly are. It is horrible, unthinkable, unconscionable, and immature that nations at any level should act as if they don't have to answer to anyone higher than themselves or their own design. How does the author of Scripture here, how does David interpret wickedness? 
How does he know that they are wicked? Well, he says in verse 3, their goal is to burst their bonds apart. That is, the boundaries, the law that God has set in place and cast away their cords from us. And before that, he says, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So David correctly discerns the wickedness of those who'd wage war against God's chosen people around him as those who have this attitude of wicked intent that would set themselves against God's anointed. You remember our definition of anointed that we're working with, which we stated earlier, that which God commissions according to his holy will. So could a mother fall into that category? Does God commission parents according to his holy will, to provide an authority structure for children to be raised and disciplined? Yes, it's in Scripture, there for you to see. It itself is in the Ten Commandments, echoed again in Ephesians 5, as we've studied of late. Does God have authority structures outside of the home? Has God anointed kings to do a certain thing for a certain purpose? Well, the, the answer is again, yes. Does God use... The indiv- his individual men as servants and stewards of creation. Well, we know that is true. How about fathers in their role in society? How about God's institutions? How about those things that he has anointed and put in place? His authority structures. We know according to Romans 13, the limit. We see that God has even instituted governments for a particular purpose. They're his avengers against wrongdoers. How can they avenge what's wrong without affirming what he has declared? And how can they do so biblically without understanding those parameters? And how can they presume to act justly if they do not love justice and mercy or walk humbly with their God who has declared what is just, right and true? And you cannot know those things independent of him. After all, you're caught in the throes and the deception of your own sin outside of the Holy Spirit overriding that by and through his word. And so here we see the concept that David is using and getting at. He discerns wickedness as those who oppose God's anointed. God's called and commissioned to act according to his holy will. So it could be Max against his mother. It could be a nation state that sees itself with unlimited power and unquestionable authority, either one. But if they continue to act in such a way as to deny God's anointed and his parameters and the things that he's declared, then they rage and they plot in vain. In the King James, I believe the language is they imagine a vain thing, which reminds me once again of where the wild things are. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Imagine if you will with me, if there's a, like a security camera in Max's room and his kid is bouncing off the walls all by himself, you know, with this smug look on his face, pretending there's a forest and he's the king of all these animals. He's just acting out with his imaginary friends and foes, these things and you're watching it. What would your reaction be watching Max carry on by himself in his imaginary world? It would be one of laughter. And if you saw him acting wickedly and you saw his heart against his mother, you know, being exercised all by himself as one of a tantrum and just letting all his emotions out, you would probably hold him in derision. 
Thus explaining God's, predi- God's disposition towards men who would act like Max in, chapter, in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, watching as it were the security camera, where men go around acting, fighting imaginary foes, pretending they are king. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. All of that was point number one, the introduction where the wild things are, a description of the world in rebellion. And I hope that this commentary attached to this verse shows us how ridiculous it is to deny God and to act outside of his prerogatives. As we continue to read, we find in the body, which is point number two, point number one, again, the introduction, point number two, the body, I've labeled this section iron versus clay. Vanity and sovereignty. It is vanity to challenge God's sovereignty. It's like iron fighting clay. Who will win? Let's continue to read verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Any ruler, king, people, nation who would like to rise up and say that they are sovereign over God, they indeed are God and there's no one to answer to, has fashioned for themselves a clay pot. The imagery is here. God continues and will forever be a rod of iron. Blow for blow, where will your money be? On that earthen vessel made of clay? Or will it be with a rod of iron? What if you employ some of these devices, some of these forums that we mentioned, like propaganda spin news releases, think tank spin theories, pundits, commentaries, you know, news headlines, editorial boards. What if you take some of those, like paint, and really embellish the surface of that earthen vessel. This institution you've created, this false God, this declaration of independence from him. What if you just paint it with all these different modes and colors? What if they're really scary pictures? What if they look like big scary monsters with fangs like Max dreamed up in his book? Will any amount, amount of embellishments on the clay pot be able to withstand the rod of iron when it strikes? Here's the imagery. That we see absolutely not. It's vanity to oppose the notion that God is sovereign. In the structure of this poem, we see how every objection and every claim and every purpose of the rulers, the nations, the people and the kings in the beginning, in the introduction is matched blow for blow like clay to iron. So the blow that the nations want to make the influence that they want to have when they rage against God's authority structures, it's matched by an iron blow. Notice in verse 1, why do the nations rage? Now let's compare that to verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Who would you rather face? The rage of a nation or the wrath of God? Would you put your security in that clay vessel The public opinion of a nation may be hell-bent for destruction, like Nineveh was. Or would you put your faith in God, 
whose word was declared by his prophet Jonah as the iron rod that declared judgment lest they repent. Well, we see in that picture in the Bible how, it play, how the events played out. People did put their faith in the iron rod and God spared that nation, that city. God spared Nineveh. If we don't have a similar experience and we continue to act independent of God's authority and lordship in this nation or in any other, there will one day be a reckoning. And a clay pot will meet a rod of iron. And where will your money be, saints? Where will you put your faith? Will you continue to listen to the embellishments on the side of that earthen jar? Or will you put your contentment in a rod of iron? Notice the very last phrase, the one hopeful phrase at the end. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Even though the rest of the world may be... It's bearing down on you on all sides. Everyone is putting their faith and what the nations, the peoples, the kings and the rulers proclaim. Even if every last person that you know of is doing so, I would encourage you. Go to Psalm 2 and put your refuge in God. And one person placing their refuge in him has more power than a nation who rages against his truth Because his ways are inarguable, his word never returns void, and that which he wills to do is always accomplished. Blow for blow, iron meets clay. Notice blow number two, the people's plot in vain. They exercise vain imaginations. Compare that with verse five. God will terrify them in his fury. I'm sorry, back up one phrase. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, which would you rather follow? The vain imaginations, the new and improved ideas, postmodern thinking, the philosophies of the modern age, the age of reason, standing on the shoulders of all the fools of old, like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and everyone who essentially said man is the measure of all things. Would you rather stand there, the way Western society has drifted in recent years, Or would you stand with God who sits in the heavens and laughs at such thinking and says, I am the measure of all things and will speak to them in his wrath. And when God speaks, that is his word. And he has spoken and we echo those words today. And my prayer is that those words would be written on the tables of his saints hearts. And they would be the retort, the response when the clay pot of people who plod in vain with the clay vessel of those with vain imaginations is echoed from the forums of this earth. Blow for blow, iron meets clay. Verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves (coughs) and the rulers, excuse me, (coughs) the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Kings of the earth get their cabinet members together. They get their yes men all in a row They're at this round table forum and they agree and they build their confidence in what each other suggests to move forward with their strategy. The Lord has done something else. The kings of the earth, they set themselves in place. Match that with verse six. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Excuse me. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Which would you rather place your allegiance and your hope and your trust and security in? The kings of the earth who set themselves like Max in his bedroom pretending to be ruler of that which they legislate and declare? Or would you like to place your faith in the rod of iron 
As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And now we start to get a peek into David's thinking. David is like one who writes with a backstage pass in the great drama of history. David knows that he's not ultimately the rule of the rod of iron. He knows that he's not the great king that's prophesied. He's just privileged to be used by God and to listen in on the conversation between the Godhead that declares Jesus Christ is Lord. We see the fulfillment of this as we've read recently again in Ephesians. When every last enemy, as Psalm 110 declares, is placed under the foot of Christ, then you will know, O kings, O rulers, O people, O nations, who is truly King of kings and Lord of lords. Who would you rather place your faith in? The clay vessel of those who set themselves or the rule of iron who says, I have placed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Again, blow for blow, God wins every time. Verse two, kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us make new laws, as we talked about. Essentially, let us embrace anarchy. Let us live lawlessly. Let us decide for ourselves what we want to do. On the one hand, we have that. Then on the other hand, we have, as we read again here in verses 7 and 8, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." Where would you rather, I ask one final time, place your faith and confidence where those who are proposing a new way, setting themselves up as king and presuming to be more holy, better, wiser and powerful than God, saying they have a vision for the earth and for the future, saying that they can accomplish peace through their own means, saying they can burst apart the bonds of this old primitive religious Christian thinking. And they have a new and better way, casting their cords of that old thing from them and embracing this brave new postmodern world. Would you rather place your faith there or place your faith in the ever unfolding prophecy where God says this decree, ask of me, in other words, Jesus, my son, ask of me and I will give you as your inheritance, the nations of the earth. And we read in Revelation, the end. That all history is moving towards by God's providential governance. One day every nation will confess that Jesus is Lord. And a true united nations will be built. But it will have as its king Jesus Christ. And in that day when this heaven and this earth is folded up like a well-worn scroll. And filed away in the annals of history where God's glory can be viewed by reflection and contrast. The new heavens and the new earth that arrive with Jesus as Lord on the throne will echo his glory in permanence and radiance and beauty forever. Don't you want to be with me, saints, worshiping around that glorious throne? Well, join with the rod of iron and reject the potter's clay. Never mind the embellishments. Point number three, submission to God is the refuge of man. Submission to God is the refuge of man. This world swirls around. All of the forces that the evil one launches do seem formidable this side of heaven. They do threaten our very lives at times. We read one example in Acts earlier in this service. 
Where do we find a refuge? Well, we don't find it in this world as other men seek. We find it in the truth of what is promised us in the one to come. We find it in the blood of Christ and the purchasing power of his death to earn for us eternal life. And this is the heart behind verses 10 through 12 as they say, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way and his wrath is quickly kindled. And then the last phrase strikes within the cord, the heart, it strikes a chord within the heart of every confessing believer, a symbol of hope. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will have no power over you. Declare your allegiance to the king of kings and tell the kings as Peter and John did. Decide for yourselves if it is right, whether we serve God or not. As for me and my house with Joshua, we will serve the Lord. We will continue with boldness ever more so as the spirit gives us strength to proclaim the lordship of Christ. As far as we can, we will honor the king. But if he forbids what God requires or requires what God forbids, we stand down. We cannot obey because we serve God rather than men. I know that this is a responsible way to apply this text in Psalm 2 because it's exactly the context as you read Acts chapter 4. You and I, in principle, face similar circumstances, saints, and likely they will increase as the days darken. But if we find our hope in the rod of iron that is our Christ Jesus, we need not be afraid. Submission to God is the best refuge. And kings ought to fear and they ought to tremble. And I do pray for pastors. I do pray for leaders, for spokespersons that would have the strength, the boldness to say, even in a public forum, even in a council before a king, even as a cabinet member of an administration to come, you had better fear the Lord, O President of the United States. You had better fear Him. Otherwise, you will certainly be dashed to pieces. God's truth is so set in stone, so inarguable, and His consequences for despising and denying and suppressing His glory are so thorough, resolute, eternal, and deplorable if you don't repent that it ought to make us quake with fear so that if we ever find ourselves in a position exercising any kind of authority, whether it's Max's mother or father or president of the United States, that we would shudder to think we would ever deny his principles. Will we fall short of his glory? We certainly will. But I pray for the heart that would be convicted according to truth and repent when those falling short When those areas where we fall short are brought to our attention. And then hopefully God can spare this nation when righteousness exalts us once again and sin is declared as a reproach. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is kindled quickly. The kiss the son reference is one speaking directly in Pictures and picture language that would be understood at the time as submission to lordship, authority, and the king. We prayed a prayer at the beginning of this service according to Acts chapter 4 that itself acknowledged God's sovereignty. 
I'd like to turn you to one other passage in Acts as we close. And this is the second time where this psalm is referenced in the New Testament. And this is one of Paul's sermons. He's speaking in Antioch to the glory of God. Someday in the near future, we might do a series on the sermons of the New Testament. And this would certainly be one of them. And it's one of my favorite passages to turn to, to help me understand my role and what it should look like and what I should say when I stand before you in this pulpit. These are some of the things that Paul said in Antioch. We'll read Acts chapter 13, verses 33 through 39. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. I love that. Direct reference to what we just read. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. Paul is preaching the resurrection of Christ, declaring that he is Lord based on that resurrection. And he said, this is an answer to the prophecy of the Psalm that we just read. And he quotes it directly by saying again in verse 33, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption for David. After he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is awesome. Paul's perspective is the same as David's. David was a small player in God's big picture. And after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Not so with Jesus Christ. He is eternal. He is Lord. He is the only one deserving of the title of supreme potentate, of king of kings, of this universe, of this earth, over anyone who has ever lived, over anyone who has ever breathed a breath or will ever breathe a breath in the future. He is incorruptible. He will never die. He has died to make propitiation for our sins, but death could not keep him in the grave. He triumphed over the last enemy death, thus declaring once and for all to the powers that be his lordship. They will hate you for this message, saints, but take your refuge in God. They will despise you for this truth, not just on your lips, not just in your songs, but actually exercise in the way you live your life, how you vote, how you serve, what you say about politics, for instance, what you say about issues today, the state of our culture, the predominant worldview that you see around us, the philosophies of man, the various winds of doctrine that blow across this land. Your answer to those questions, and it is continually perfected and sharpened by the word of God, will be hated by those who want the freedom to live like Max in their own little world as their own little king, pretending to be God, thus denying despising and suppressing the only way, truth, and life that is Jesus Christ. From the smallest to the largest, from the least influential to the greatest king who ever lived, all will be brought low before the king of kings and all will be held accountable. Submission is 
inevitable. Let's pray. Father, as we see in your word, hopefully to a greater degree, the extent of the authority that you retain and the glorious infinite reaches of your realm and the power which you have at your disposal should you choose to exercise in this moment, every man on this planet would be immediately sent to hell to justly receive the payment for his own sin. The fact that you are a God, this just, holy, and true, this powerful and righteous only accentuates to us this morning the long-suffering, steadfast love of our almighty God who would present to us, not because we deserve, but because you will and decreed for your glory, a way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let us kiss that son. Let us submit to you. Let us live in light of that truth. Let us apply it, let us speak it, and let us not compromise with anything less than the gospel. Father, if there's anyone here who has not bowed, truly bowed the knees of their heart before your lordship, abandoning all other claims to the contrary, let the sharp words of your Bible strike conviction in their heart that they might confess Jesus as their Lord, their Messiah, their Savior, their King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.